have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. I'm your host. The friends will be along shortly. Keanu Reeves is in a video game called Cyberpunk 2077. I remember when dystopian cyberpunk was a vision of the future, not the reality of the present. Although, it does have Keanu Reeves, and we all love him. Anyway, I've commented on something in the current zeitgeist, now let us speak of it no more. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Enough explaining, just focus! Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny. This book has everything. Amnesia, interdimensional travel, naval battles, court intrigue, kingdoms of mermaids, and wizards fighting with the weather. And it's only 119 pages. If you thought Aquaman had a million things going on, friend, you ain't seen nothing. The best part is, it all works. Transitioning from spy thriller to Lord of the Rings epic feels natural and proper in this story. I wonder if this influenced Nick Harkaway's genre recursion salad, The Gone Away World. 91 words left. Genre hopping often feels silly. <coughs> Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. <coughs> but here it just adds to the sweeping grandeur of a classic quest to regain the throne narrative. If you've been burned by empty promises from fantasy writers, fear not. This series is finished. And based on the relatively short length of every book, it seems someone isn't given to long-winded Martinesques. Despite the brevity, the world is rich and detailed, the twists of fate are unexpected and entertaining, and the imagery is delicious. Rare is the author who writes the uncanny well, but Zelazny has oddness to spare. This is my very first interview with one of my fellow studio renters here at the Morgan Block building. This is also my very first interview with someone I don't know personally, so I hope this is interesting and entertaining for you folks, but I'm still sort of learning the ropes of this interviewing thing, and I kind of felt like I didn't quite get us to the point of rapport where I really got to dig in, but there's a lot of interesting stuff here, and I hope you folks enjoy it. I'm sitting here with another member of the Morgan Block Building Art Studios. This is Nancy Canyon. Nancy, you are a writer, poet, and you also make visual art, correct? That's correct. Paintings, acrylic paintings. And dabbled in photography. And I've dabbled in photography. And I've also, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I grew up playing music, piano, and organ. And then I also was a dancer for a lot of years on stage mm -hmm. in Spokane. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. What style of dance? Modern, mostly. Some ballet. <laughs> I thought I would never quit dancing, but I do dance, but still, but ballroom. <laughs> I took one semester of ballet back when I was at Western, and I think it was the best shape I, I was ever in in my life. It's super hard. <laughs> People don't realize how much muscle control it takes. The joke among a lot of my circus friends is that ballet is like the ninja, like they're the ninjas of performance artists. Mm -hmm. Just because like all of the like bar walking and things like that that you have to do. 
How long have you been a member of the Morgan Block building? I've only been here a year. I'm the new kid on the block. Uh, I think I moved in about 2006. And I was in room seven, the smallest room here. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to nine where Mary Jo is. And then I moved here in your room when that wall was gone. So oh. that was a bigger room. Oh, wow. And then I went from here down to my corner room. Yeah, this is it's such a fascinating structure like that it was built to be a a boarding house with storefronts down below so you have all these like small rooms and yet what was considered like boarding house rooms 150 years ago like these are huge rooms like this the really tall ceilings and everything like that it's a very european construction style i love the high ceilings yeah so what do you primarily work on in your studio here now I've been painting a lot for the last couple of years. I've had a lot of shows and um, some solo shows. And I still have some group shows this year, but I'm going to try to change out my style and work more quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty realistic, right? I have been pretty realistic, but I would like to be more expressionistic and paint faster. (laughs) And more playful. I feel like I've gotten too serious being realistic. Uh huh. What is the like? Do you do you have a thematic thing that you are going for? Even even with the realism, like, are you what what do you like depicting? Uh, when I first started painting, I um, was very excited about the flowers I saw in Hawaii, and I um, took a lot of photos there. Uh, with my SLR at the time and uh, started painting photos but I always abstracted them somewhat so uh, even though they were realistic they were slightly abstracted larger than natural size and um, maybe I would just have a certain petals in one area so people didn't really always know what they were but it was definitely the the florals and then that moved into leaves and then the leaves moved to uh, the water lilies and then just the surface of the water and then I think I'm going back to flowers now, only painting them fast. <laughs> that idea of abstraction from photography, so it's like a realistic depiction, but with abstraction added, that just sort of reminded me of, there's a vlogger named John Green who wrote the book, uh, The Fault in Our Stars. I think that's his name. And he was talking about how a photographic camera can never capture what our eyes see. It's never correct. But in some ways, a painting can, because a, a painting can be massaged and like you can add layers and you can, you can play with it. It's not the sort of stark specificity of a photograph. Is, is that part of your thinking when you're capturing a photograph and then transforming it into a painting? Well, there's a big um, discussion about photos made into paintings amongst artists. Some people don't think that one should even use photos at all because um, the light's not real um, in a photo Mm -hmm. and things so so things flatten out and then but I um, have tried and tried just to paint without just from my imagination I had one teacher once says don't paint from your imagination (laughs) just paint what you see so um, I do use the photos though because I like to do that so as a as a reference. As a reference, I use it as um, yeah. I move away from the 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 shapes and but I I rely a lot on the colors. I like the colors I see. So you don't paint 
from your imagination or you don't fall into sort of that style of things but what is the argument for that that people say that you shouldn't paint from photos is there well there was the big photorealism movement that you tried to make it look as much like a photo as possible and Mm -hmm. there was a lot of um kickback against that and 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 because if we had why paint a photo if we can just take a photo so um but I, I kind of think relying on some reference is good. Some people like to just draw or paint from flowers they pick and put in their studio, mm-hmm. but they're moving and wilting and changing all the time, and I'm not good at that. I need something to look at for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that idea of a reference, it, it's so fascinating to me that that would be controversial in any way. Because I, I guess, I, I mean, I'm, I don't, paint so from the outside perspective it's something where you know even 150 200 years ago people would go out with sketchbooks and like make these reference drawings or sketches or things like that uh like some of the exhibitions i've been to around the world where they have sort of like a paint like a retrospective collection of a painter or something and they'll have all these sketchbooks and you can see like this is the sketch that led to this painting or whatever like it just seems like a photograph would be an even better sketch or you or you take that sketch and you take the photograph and you work from all those pieces mm-hmm. to come up with your final piece or you just are a plein air painter and paint right there at the site mm-hmm. which i've done too and that's interesting you know the weather changes and the sky changes and light changes and that is one of my favorite things i've ever gotten to do is along the uh there's that sort of overlook by Pike Place Market in Seattle where you it's overlooking Puget Sound and the ferries and all that. And there was a day I was down there and there were 15 to 20 painters just all lined oh, up yeah. and walking down that and seeing what each individual person is seeing. Because they're all looking at the same view. I guess from slightly different spots, but it's all the same sort right. of view. And seeing the different... I guess, visions of that. We went to Italy, um, my husband and I, a couple of years back, and we plein air painted mm-hmm. many days there. And what I learned about painting outside is about myself as I kept wanting to capture what I saw each moment. So I kept changing my painting because the sky kept changing, the light kept changing, and then I realized you can't do that. You said, get the sky down, then move on mm-hmm. <laughs> and leave it. So it was an interesting process. That, that I've often heard that Italy is the place that people go for for you called it plein air painting. Plein air. Plein air. It means out in the open air. Oh, I've I've this is all new to me. It's so so interesting. Mm-hmm. So forgive my ignorance. Uh, but I often hear that like if you want to paint, you go to Italy. Is there a particular reason for that, or is it just because the architecture is so beautiful and the weather is generally nice? Uh, the architecture is beautiful and the light seems different somehow and we contemplated that why the light was different but everything seemed a little more golden or something Mm -hmm. so it was really quite stunning and then there's things there that we just don't see here at all Um, facades on buildings and and even the people look different and there's a lot of little um, 
centers of villages that you know with laundry hanging out at when uh, their windows and people sitting out by the you know for an afternoon mm-hmm. rest or something it was just so quaint so you know there's beautiful things to see it is that that difference in pace of life to how to what we're used to here that they have over in Europe i i think part of it is just that they've all been there longer like all, all of the you know non-indigenous populations of north america have been here for so little time like particularly in this area when i remember when i was a child growing up here in bellingham i met people who remembered when the guide meridian uh, that main thoroughfare up to the border was wood like lo- like wooden log planks because that you know that was less than 150 years ago that there were these they were just chopping down trees to make a road oh, no. to drive on there's these photographs of model t fords driving on like through a forest of on logs, tr- on logs That's to get crazy. to get up to linden and blaine and such oh wow what is the relationship between your painting and your visual art and your writing, your poetry? Is, do, do you perceive a relationship? Is there a conversation between those two? I am really visual. So it, when you're talking to me about the trees on, as a road, then mm-hmm. I just see that picture in my mind. And I'm like that with my writing. So if, if I'm writing a scene about... Um, one of my books has a, a, a lake that this woman lives by and there's big lily leaves there in the in the lake and and so i just see all that so then i see it and then i write about it so it's really a kind of a movie in my mind and it's the same when i'm creating a painting as i see it first in my mind and then i try to come up with reference and and um put get it out of my mind onto the paper or onto the canvas a friend of mine was teaching a songwriting workshop, and my friend said, when you're writing a song, write pictures. Which, it sounds counterintuitive, because I think most musicians are writing in emotions. You know, they, they want to sing about love, or they want to sing about, you know, sadness or something like that. And my friend was saying, make a picture. You know, don't say I'm sad, say I only put on one sock this morning, or something like that. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> And it's, it's, it feels the same way when you talk about the lake, like it's someone looking at a lake and then they, there's the one particular detail of the lilies and you sort of, you've, you've, when you focus in on one thing like that, it starts to paint a more specific picture. Right. It's a, it's it's tangentially related, but that, that's sort of like that, that when you build up a picture of something, there's a. I was looking at a woman's uh, Amazon review history last night on Amazon, all the things she's bought and her her reviews of them. And it was all like accessories for having kids, like a stroller, that kind of stuff. And then uh, a portable spittoon <laughs> for like when you're in your car, when you're chewing tobacco. And, it, and she said, this thing is amazing. It saved my marriage. And it's the only thing she gave a five-star review to. Like, everything else was three or four-star reviews. <laughs> and it, it just completely changes the picture. Right. You sort of have this young mother who's, like, buying child-rearing accessories and stuff, you know, stuff for the home. And then she's, like, 
this thing. And then you start to, just from that, it changes the image of that single detail. How that can completely change the image. Right, right. And um, with a poem or a novel, if there is an image in my mind, it's like I, I don't know where to start. So that image, yeah. And of course you can build your characters that way. Like you just said, that built that character in a different way than it would have if she hadn't bought a spittoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I just found the specificity of that so, yeah. like in a sense, beguiling. Like there's a story there. And that that way that no person is... You know, we so often in writing, we're looking at stock archetypes and particular, you know, a character who sort of fits into this mold. And yet the most interesting characters are ones that fit the mold, but then have something that is very different from that. So, sorry, I'm going to jump topics a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned that you would, you submit poetry to things and you've had books published. Is that correct? I have um, an ebook of short short stories mm-hmm. that's published um, and it's available on Amazon. Then I have a book of poetry that uh, a press here in Bellingham published, and I self-published my first novel, which I don't know was a good idea, although. <laughs> I was listening to Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and she said, just get it out there. Even if it's bad, get it out there. So that's kind of what I did. But um, I may rewrite that book someday. Who knows? So anyway, I have that book. And (laughs) I have a couple more novels that are not published. Um, A manuscript of a memoir that I just finished. A memoir about? A Fire Lookout Tower. I was on by man two summers in the 70s. Oh, wow. So, yeah. like, sort of a... That, isn't there a Kerouac book where he goes and does that for a oh, while? yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I didn't... And I kind of kicked myself now that I didn't do any writing when I was on the tower. I don't have any journals to go back to, but I have really good memory, so I have... Um, and this whole story that came out about my first husband and I, Jack, and I were up there for two summers had a lot of fires, a lot of lightning storms. And it was really frightening sometimes, and sometimes it was just terribly boring. <laughs> it sounds like, uh, I can't remember what was being talked about, but there some. It, I was reading some historical book, and they were talking about how it was long stretches of boredom punctuated by stark raving terror. Or yeah, something that's like, like, good, <laughs> a good way to put it. But I suppose that even though you don't have... Uh, notes and journals from that time if you're seeing the world as like very specific images you probably still have those strongly in your memory to draw on I do and it was a very specific time for us in the culture with the Vietnam War and my brother had was in the war and so he had come back and he came to the tower and stayed with us for a while after he'd got back from Nam and and then uh, we had other friends that came to visit so there's real specific things that happened there that are emblazoned in my mind yeah so it's also a story about the way I grew up with a abusive parent so I decided to write this adventure story because I thought the other story was kind of boring to tell just as is so it seemed like a good idea it was sort of like uh, what um, Wilde the book that about the adventure on the 
what's that trail? Is it the Pacific Crest or the yeah, Appalachian or something? The Pacific Crest Trail, oh. and her, and her mother had died, so she was trying to make sense of that. So I was trying to make sense of some things that had happened in my life, and and that was a good story to make sense of it in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If that makes sense. <laughs> it, it does. The, sort of how you react to something that happens later in life is uh, like always informed by something that's happened before. But sometimes you don't see the connection at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think often in sort of writing up some of these things, I, I'll have to pick your brain at some point in the future about writing a memoir because I've started working on one about sort of coming out of a very conservative upbringing and then immediately being dropped in at the deep end of like the West Coast circus vaudeville, uh, you know, performing arts scene with things like Oregon Country Fair and Chautauqua. And it was just like complete and utter 180. Right. And just confusing as all get out. But it's sort of, you know, in the, the thinking about writing up that time, the instinct for me is to include incidents and scenes from earlier, you know, my childhood that informed the sort of reactions and interactions that I had later. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I think memoirs, that's the place where it can do all that. Of course, you can take it into fiction too, but like I did with my first book, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. Memoirs great. Indeed. As we're sort of wrapping this up towards the end, I, I'm always curious about recommendations from my guests in terms of authors or poets or things that you would like to recommend or champion. I started this podcast because I wanted to feature voices and work that was not just the canon of, you know, classic Western art, which is generally male and white and from a very specific place. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons that I am so excited to be in this building because there's such a such a spread of people mm-hmm. with very different artistic leanings. Uh, all that is to say, are there any authors or artists that you just think are indispensable? Well, my first writing teacher, Natalie Goldberg, is pretty indispensable to me. I, I think that... I, when I started reading her, I was actually painting and used her books as to inspire me in my painting. But then I realized I really needed to be a writer, so I started really following her and went to Taos, New Mexico, and took her class there. And, and um, she was my launch, so I would read any of her work. And um, another author, Abigail Thomas, I like a lot. Although not so much her last book, but um, she's a good one for memoir, to learn how to do memoir. And um, as far as painters, Van Gogh was really always one of my favorite and still is. And there's been some great movies about him in the last few years that kind of draw him as a, pic- a picture of him in a little bit different light than we had uh, we've seen in some of the earlier stories about him. and how really um, he was sort of bonkers, but he really was an amazing, amazing artist who that's all he wanted to do. So Mm -hmm. I'm always inspired by people like that who just, they are artists and they have to be artists and they just live their life that way.
thank you so much for appearing <laughs> on my podcast. I know it's a little bit strange in a different kind of format than I think a lot of the folks in this building are used to expressing themselves in, but I appreciate it so much. It's, mm-hmm. it's, this is all about me stepping outside of my comfort zone and sort of engaging with art and things that I wouldn't normally be aware of. So I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. All right. So that was my chat with Nancy Canyon, who is just a wonderful person. I'm really glad to be sharing the building with people like Nancy. Here's a thought. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Bechtel test. The test, meant to be applied to films to show how little women's perspective and stories are shared in major Hollywood features. The test goes something like this. 1. Is there more than one woman in the film? 2. Does she talk to any other woman? 3. Do they talk for more than a minute about something other than a man? The test first appeared in a 1985 strip from the comic Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechtel. In the years since, it has become a popular rubric in the internet age. It's a quick and pithy way to point out a very real problem in an industry whose creative voices were, in the 80s, and sadly, still often are, an overrepresentation of straight, white men. Now, we could go down a rabbit hole talking about this test. I'm a firm believer that what it points out is something we should think about more critically. But it's not the be-all, end-all say on film quality when it comes to portrayals of women. I mean, half of all lesbian that word is in air quotes, by the way, porn would probably pass the Bechdel test. Just because a film has those three points covered does not mean it is an accurate portrayal of women. People far more qualified than I have spent entire academic careers talking about this test and the issue it represents. So why am I spending time on it? Because it's one of those things you cannot unsee once you notice this disparity in the types of stories women get to participate in. It changes the way in which you appreciate and view film. See also the Madonna whore complex or the monstrous femme theory. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that second one right. I'm doing my best. All of this is a long-winded way of me introducing something which I can no longer unsee and thus want to make sure you all see. So I no longer feel burdened by the lonely life of subjugation to the Lovecraftian horror that is seeing into the unknowable void of existence. Sorry. In 1997, there was a movie called As Good As It Gets, starring Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt, and Greg Kinnear. I remember almost nothing about this film except that Jack Nicholson is a successful writer who is an asshole. Wow, he was really pushing himself to act, huh? In the film, a woman asks him, how do you write women so well? And he says, I think of a man, and I take away reason and accountability. Dick. I don't know why I specifically remember this line. Come to think of it, I'm not sure why I remember anything about a weird dramedy I watched once with my parents when I was about 14. Why did I watch it? It had no violent action scenes, no nudity, it was just... a movie. I'm getting distracted. Here's the point. That line by Nicholson's character is pretty much the epitome of a phenomenon I've noticed in male writing. As if born along on the tide of masculine thought that purports, women are crazy. We've all heard a stand-up comedian go on and on about how women do things for no reason. Why is my wife mad? Who knows? The fact that a woman could be angry for a reason is almost beyond conception in some circles. As a result, we get stories where women 
fly off the handle for no reason at the slightest provocation. Picture that classic image, a forlorn and comically befuddled man standing on the sidewalk as a woman tosses his things at him from their apartment window. For just a couple of examples, look at Dark Magic, previously covered on this podcast, or the 2001 film The Mexican, for just two. I'm sure anyone listening could come up with a dozen more. These two just sprang to mind as I wrote this. I finally noticed this phenomenon, as it were, in absentia. Last month, I read Robert Jordan's 1990 fantasy novel, The Eye of the World. Though written by a man, the book has the distinction of passing the Bechdel test and having multiple nuanced female characters. The topic for this essay sprang full-formed into my mind as I read a scene in which one of the women in the obligatory fantasy adventure party berates one of her male companions for his behavior of late. Though written from the young man's perspective, this dressing down is portrayed as deserved and wholly understandable. We know why the lady in question is unhappy with our young hero, and what's more, he seems to actually change his way of thinking about her and their relationship as a result of the altercation. The whole thing is even more noticeable because Jordan has written this scene specifically as a moment of personal growth. The novel features three young men in their late teens, all of whom seem to view the thoughts and ways of women as mysterious. The idea that this mystery will be lifted, the veil brushed away, through the simple act of listening to what a woman in question has to say, is portrayed by Jordan as one of the beginnings of maturity. All three of the young men learn to listen and value the contributions of the women in the party, as well as to respect and value their emotional lives. These are not damsels to be won, they are human beings with their own motivations and feelings. I'm not saying the writing of women in this novel is perfect, I'm just saying that the characters feel more realistic by virtue of the fact that when they are cross, it's for a damn good reason. If only more writers did so as well, but hey, maybe women are just angry and shrill for no reason. That's gotta be it. I need more coffee. Hokey fright, have you heard about blockers? Last year, I enjoyed the blissful and heady time that was the height of MoviePass. Being the child my father raised to seek every bargain possible, I was taking full advantage of the soon-to-prove-too-good-to-be-true offer of unlimited movies for the staggering rate of seeing as many movies as I wanted to for $9.95 a month. I'm just noting that incredible offer because what it did for my film-viewing habits during the four months I was using the service. I saw everything in theaters. Prior to March of 2018, I cannot even guess the last time I had seen something other than a big action spectacle from Marvel or Star Wars or Pixar. Oh, wow. Even as I type that, I'm realizing just how much Disney owns now. Sorry, that's not really pertinent. Point is, my theatrical consumption habits lean towards spectacle. I prefer to watch smaller, more character-driven work at home. The same goes for comedies, even the larger ones. But I'm getting into the weeds here. The point is, I went and saw Blockers in the theater with a bunch of strangers. Films are just different that way. I don't remember laughing that much at a single comedy in a long time. I got to laugh with an audience. It was almost like seeing a stand-up comedian. It was <laughs> wild. The basic setup of the film runs something like this. A trio of suburban parents accidentally get looped in on the text message thread their daughters are using to plan their post-prom night party antics. The three high school seniors decide amongst themselves that they will all lose their virginities that night. 
which naturally sends the parents into conniptions. Young women taking control of their own sexual awakenings clutch the pearls and perish the thought. The three parents, played by John Cena, Leslie Mann, and Ike Barinholtz, set off on a Ulyssian adventure to protect the virtue of their offspring, played by Catherine Newton, Geraldine Viswanathan, Viswanathan? I'm so sorry, Geraldine. You're awesome. I just, I, I don't know how to say it. And Gideon Adlon, who is the daughter of Pamela Adlon, who is another gifted comedic performer. Shenanigans ensue. What makes this work so well is the almost constant reversal of nearly all expectations. While American Pie immediately springs to mind, one being tempted to view this as a gender-flipped and role-reversing sort of exercise, that sort of comparison does this film a grave disservice. So often in film, we are given a clear set of people to root for. Either the children are desperate to break away from parents who no longer understand them, or we are shown parents who are barely hanging on in a world that no longer resembles the one they used to rule. Instead, we get a surprisingly nuanced portrayal of both parties as they make their way from one hilarious misunderstanding to the next. It's wonderful to see both age groups get their moments to shine in comic situations, especially with the marketing being so set on pushing the antics of the parents. The reversal of expectations is perhaps best summarized by Angelica, a minor supporting character played by Ramona Young. I don't know if any of you went to school with what I'll call the Pages Kid. This is a term I just invented, inspired by my favorite song by Aaron J. Shea, In These Pages. The narrator of the song is a young person clearly searching for meaning in the fictional worlds of their books into which they wish they could escape. I'm sure you know the type. That kid from seventh grade who wore a trench coat because they liked the Matrix, like, a lot. Or the one who doodled in their notebooks in Elvish or wore a serape and a Stetson into class. I remarked on this phenomenon to a friend from high school recently and asked if our school had one of those. I don't know why it surprised me when I found out I was the Pages Kid. In any event, I think the Pages Kid is often portrayed as something sort of lame and laughable in most teen comedies. Not so here. Angelica is weird to be sure, but she's far from a hated social pariah. The fact that she goes to prom in full Rivendell finery does not seem to arouse much comment in her fellow students. She gets some of the best moments in the film, and her inherent oddness is treated more as a fact of her character than her defining characteristic. Leslie Mann deserves a special shout-out for a bravura performance in a scene of desperate stealth escape. Through circumstances which could only exist in a movie like this, Mann ends up hiding in the very hotel room where her daughter is about to lose her virginity. If that sounds like a setup to something gross, voyeuristic, or cringe-inducing to you, then you have not caught on to the vibe this movie is creating. Instead, the scene is played with a kind of sentimentality. The young people in question are respectful and kind to one another, even though they are very awkward. It almost makes one's blood boil to think that so many comedies portray the worst of teen romance for either comedy or a kind of gloomy-minded pathos. We get to watch man's countenance go from one of stark terror to glowing pride mixed with a sort of wistful melancholy as her daughter grows up before her very eyes. To top it all off, this occurs as man is doing some incredible space work, diving behind couches, hiding in drapes, and crawling across the floor to reach the exit. The sweetness of the scene is not spoiled either, as her exit is made well and truly before any of the festivities get underway. This is a delightful film about growing up in the modern world, finding oneself, and the first inklings of the kind of cross-generational understanding one always hopes to find with parents, be they natural or surrogate. 
If I have a crossword to deliver about this film, it's the way that the member of the leading trio of teens turns out to have affections of a <clears throat> lesbian nature, and how she gets slightly less screen time devoted to her romance and parts of the adventure. The sweetness of her coming out moment to her parent is played really nice, though. There's just a sense of reduction here. It's miles ahead of the gay characters I had in cinema as a teen. I'm looking at you, bring it on. But still feels a bit hollow, especially when stacked up against the other two parent-daughter relationships. This is the kind of film I wish I saw more of, but it's difficult to find teen parent party adventure films that don't suck. You know, without the benefit of movie pass to magically sneak you into the theater. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week. This song is called On My Journey Home. I learned this out of the Alan Lomax book, The Folk Songs of North America. And I just, I can't stress how much I love this. There's just these beautiful elegiac songs in old Americana where it almost has sort of a, a medieval feel to it. You'll hear it in the chord structure. I I love it when I find an old tune that even though I've never heard it before, it speaks to something in my bones. And this is definitely one of those. So I hope you folks enjoy On My Way Home.
So that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. If you'd like to ask me a question or send a comment or get rid of a piece of weird taxidermy, you can send that stuff to Strangely, 1000 Harris Ave, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I really look forward to hearing from you. I'm trying to create an atmosphere with this podcast where if people write in and interact with the podcast, they're sending postcards or letters or things like that because... I just want this to sort of be a more tactile world. You know, I just, I'm a very old-timey-minded person, and I like getting things in the mail. So send me stuff. I mean, you don't even, you could send it without a return address. You could just put something weird in an envelope, mail it to me, and I'll talk about it on the podcast. Special thanks to everybody who helps make this podcast possible all you folks on patreon are literally keeping me alive i buy groceries with the money i get from making this podcast if you're not yet a supporter of strangely and friends the podcast consider doing it you can support for as little as one dollar an episode and that sort of thing helps keep the lights on helps keep the uh, potatoes rolling I mean, I'm basically just, I'm eating a lot of fried potatoes It's that I fry myself. It's its not like I'm dining out on caviar and, wow, I can't even think of another fancy food. Pate? 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 Is that a fancy food? Caviar and pate. That'll work. I'm really excited to let you folks know that next week's episode is going to be the first in like a three-episode arc Three artist friends of mine from California came through Bellingham and we did a show here in my my studio. We crammed about 15 people into this little 10 by 10 room and two of the artists did their like live performance art. And then uh, another my the third artist came in, filmed it. So next week you're going to get like a fringe show. Uh, next week, my friend Jory Phillips is going to be on the podcast. You're going to get to hear her performing here at my studio. And then afterwards, we sat down for a chat about her art. The weekend after that will be my dear, dear friend Trevor talking about their experiences and writing of their show. And then the week after that will be my friend Cayman, who is a filmmaker and has been documenting Jory and Trevor's trip across America as they've been doing their show. So I think it's going to be a really great couple of weeks. So you folks have that to look forward to, and I'll see you all next week. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced at Sonic Suitcase Studios in fairly fine, fiscally responsible Fairhaven, Washington. Sonic Suitcase Studios is located in the Morgan Block Building, part of the People's Land Trust. This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon. Check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of whatever this is. Now, I have an eight-year-old grandson, so most of the jokes that we tell at the dinner table are, you know, pretty silly eight-year-old jokes. But this one I always like. It's... Um, uh, what did the buffalo say to his y- young man who was going off to college? What? Bison. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a classic. I know. I love and it. then I made up one, but uh-huh. I don't know if you want to hear this one. Oh, yeah, one. go for it. <laughs> see if I can remember it. I made it up the other day. Um, oh, I think it is. What is the overworked chicken? What does the overworked chicken say? What? Work, 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 work. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!
<laughs> oh, that's great. So perfect. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.